Our scripture reading today comes from the gospel according to Matthew, and I invite you to stand in body or in spirit as you're able and honor the reading of God's word. Hear these words from Matthew chapter 18. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. You may be seated. I do want to also echo, uh, Emily, that was awesome. I'm so grateful for you and Jamie and Julie and Stephanie for leading our cherub choir. Um, and to our acolytes, I don't say thank you to our acolytes ever, but I'm thankful, Caitlin, to our veteran acolyte and to Buck. And Bryce, this is your first time, and you're great. You really did a great job, and I'm thankful for y'all carrying the light of Jesus into this sanctuary. The last week of August, Adair and I spent time with my parents uh, my sister Haley and her husband Zach and their almost two-year-old Crosby. Uh, Crosby has started recently gaining a vocabulary. Right now he says yes, he says no, he says uh-oh, um, and he says snack. And those are all really important things, I think. Um, now I don't know if this is every almost two-year-old, uh, but during our time together I noted that Crosby has a particularly effective way of dealing with conflict. Um, it's very effective. If there is something he likes or he wants, he's cute and he's amicable. Um, if there's something he doesn't like, he cries <laughs> immediately. And you know what? It works. It works for the resolution of the conflict. Crosby's manner of conflict resol resolution is brilliant um, for, just, for a kid who knows four words. It's also a little window into my immediate future, I think. Um, <laughs> But I highly doubt that my sister desires for her son to deal with a disagreement the same way 20 years from now. <laughs> In fact, she's told me that she hopes that she and Zach can model a healthy way of dealing with conflict so that Crosby can see it and hopefully learn from it. Perhaps, I don't know, that, that might be the hope of most parents. We all deal with conflict differently, and in my experience, there are roles that we all tend to adopt in the conflict, parts that we play that we have learned from our growing up, from our families, and they've stuck with us. And I've got a few names for these roles that, that, that we play in conflict. You might see yourself in one or two of those, and that's, that's okay. First, in conflict, there's always the person I call the sprinter. This is the person that seeks conflict like there's no tomorrow. They see it and they run to it like a shark with blood in the water. They're there. They will take care of it quickly when they see a conflict. Then... There's also the kind of person, I call them the smoother. They, they sense conflict, and they immediately begin trying to provide humor and distraction in order to quickly diffuse any or all conflict. That's kind of my thing. Um, there's also the sweeper. The sweeper wants to sweep all conflict. Under, it doesn't exist. 
Conflict doesn't, doesn't ever exist. There's the shrink, this is my father, who is the expert at conflict and wants to spend three hours psychoanalyzing everybody's insides, their minds, to get to the heart of the problem. There is the snapper, the person who quietly waits and, and just takes in conflict over time, building resentment, and then at the right moment, they snap. <laughs> and you think, where did that come from? Then there is also the student, I think, the one who learns and listens to the issues and maybe doesn't enjoy the conflict, but they learn how to deal with, how to do what is necessary and how to deal with it in a healthy way. Now, I don't know who you see yourself as. I just saw a lot of people looking at each other uh, a second ago. I don't know if you see yourself as a sprinter or a smoother or some combination of those. I told you my tendency is, is toward the smoother. I need there to be a good vibe in the room at least the perception of peace, I would like. Uh, but I think we all want to be people who deal with conflict well. Because conflict is a part of life. It's not going away. And I think most of us would like to find ways to handle ourselves better when it comes to conflict. At least I would. Robert Louis Stevenson said, with a, a little more patience and a little less temper, a gentler and wiser method might be found in almost every case. Now, Jesus has a few things to say about how to handle ourselves in conflict, and his words that we've already heard today come in the middle of a conversation. We started our verse in the middle of a conversation about what it means to be a disciple. The disciples started, if you track back for a second, the disciples begin by asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, one who can humble themselves like a child. Oh, and by the way, God help anybody who causes them to stumble. I think that's what makes our preschool staff so special. They humbly care for our kids, for the little ones. And Jesus says that makes them pretty great in the kingdom of heaven. And they're an example to us of what a disciple should be. After that, Jesus talks about how much God loves the disciple. So much so that God is willing to leave 99 sheep on a hillside to search for just one. And that's an example of how, how much we should love each other. We should do all we can to remain in relationship with one another, even leave 99 to find one which is why Jesus launches into a conversation about conflict. The question comes, what happens if when trying to humble ourselves like, like children, what happens when we're searching out the lost sheep, what happens if then there is a conflict between us or between each other? The actual question is this, what happens if a fellow disciple sins against me? What am I supposed to do? And the, the pronoun there is singular. So Jesus is not talking to y'all. He's talking to you. If a disciple sins against you, what do you do? Well, Jesus doesn't say you should definitely shout it from Twitter and Facebook. You should start telling so -and -so, everybody what so-and-so did to you. Call your friends. Text everybody. No, Jesus says that you go to that brother or sister and you talk to them. Let them know what's happened, what you're feeling, what's going on. Let them know that you've been wronged and seek reconciliation. And if that person listens, Jesus says, you have regained that one, just like the lost sheep. The message translation says this, if somebody hurts you, just go and work it out, the two of you. And if the person listens, you've made a friend. Now pause for a moment, because I want to make sure you understand that this process of five verses that Connor just read is not really meant to be a checklist. This isn't like a quick TED talk that you can watch and everything's fine. We should not pretend that this conflict resolution business doesn't take weeks or months or even years. 
In the realm of human conflict, it often takes us a while to even get to that first step, to even invite the conversation. And even after we share a concern with someone, we probably continue to do that again and again and again, hoping it works out. And that's okay. But Jesus says, if that first step doesn't work, take a fellow disciple, take a friend or two, and bring up the issue again. The presence of witnesses will keep things honest. That's left over from Deuteronomy in the process of, of criminal prosecution. You're supposed to have two or three witnesses to make your case. So bringing some folks with you may be a good idea. But what happens if the person who has wronged you still refuses to listen? Well, then you share it with the church. This probably means the church leadership. If the church leadership can't help, if that person still won't listen, Jesus says, then treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. For I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that sounds important, but it's a little bit hard for me to understand. There's multiple interpretations of that. What does this mean? It's nice of you to ask. One interpretation is this. When you bind someone's sins to them in the midst of conflict resolution, you are saying, fine, do what you want. Your will be done. What are you doing? You're letting them go. And of course, the hope is that in letting them go, there might be a little bit of space and they might sit with the consequence. They might get to the point of realizing that what they've done and seek reconciliation. Like the father who lets his son take his inheritance and he goes to the far country and at one point the son realizes what he's done and runs home to his dad. So after every effort has been put forth, if the relationship still can't be healed, if they still won't come clean, then there needs to be some space. Let them go in hopes that if words can't work, perhaps some space can do the trick. I'm sure many of you have been there. Somebody once told us before we got married, they said, never go to, go to bed angry. And we quickly realized, actually, I'm a lot better at conflict resolution in the morning <laughs> uh, once we've had rest. Maybe some space works occasionally to work things out. And Jesus shares a promise, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Now I'm sure if you've ever been in the presence of some kind of prayer meeting or anything, you've heard that verse invoked. God, we know that you've said when two or three are gathered in your name, you are there. First, I want to say this about that. I believe Jesus is present in this gathering today. And there are more than two or three of us. I believe that Jesus is present in a gathering of two or three. I also believe that Jesus is with you when it's just you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with who? Me. <laughs> just me. But in this verse, Jesus says he is especially with us, not just in the gathering, but in a gathering of folks trying to figure things out, trying to bring back a lost sheep, trying to find a way forward in the midst of conflict where two or three are gathered trying to find con reconciliation to conflict, I am there. But, and there's always a but, and it's always Peter. Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, what if I do that? What if I do all that? I've done all of your instructions. I met with them one-on-one. -on -one. I brought some friends. I brought it to the church leadership. I've given them space. And what if it works? What if all that works? Everything you just said, and there's been forgiveness and reconciliation. What happens if I go through all that, but then they just sin against me again? They just do it again. What happens? How many times do I have to forgive them? 
What's my limit? Seven? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. Some translations say 70 times, seven times. It doesn't really matter the number. It might as well be a thousand times because his point is this, forgiveness is the name of the game. And if it doesn't work the first time, then you do it again and again and again and again. And yes, sometimes the conflict doesn't get resolved immediately. And sometimes you have to change the strategy. Let them go, give them space. But don't let that get in the way of your forgiveness. You are in the business of forgiving. Oh, and by the way, do you know what happens if you don't forgive? You read the Sermon on the Mount? If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So it seems important. Forgiveness is the key, and it turns out Jesus is not a sweeper or a smoother or any of those funny names. Jesus is a forgiver. That's what he's all about. That's his mantra. That is the purpose. That is who he is, and he has gone to great lengths to show us that forgiveness. Has he not? And he invites us into the same manner of radical forgiveness. Now before I close, I want to go back for just a second because we skipped over a part of that verse that I think is is pretty important. In the midst of Jesus sharing the steps of managing conflict over time, he says, you know, after you've you've tried to resolve the issue one-on-one and after you've brought a couple of others and tried to do it as a group, and after you've brought the issue before the leadership of the church and the person that has sinned against you still refuses to listen, it says, treat them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, at first glance, it seems to indicate that if conflict resolution doesn't work, we're then supposed to let that person be to us as those who were despised by first century Jews. Let them be of the class of folks who are seen as traitors and outsiders. Let them be shunned from our community. But let me ask you this. Isn't the guy giving these instructions, isn't this the guy who was accused by the Jewish leadership of eating with tax collectors and sinners? Isn't this the same guy who recruited a tax collector? into his disciples? Isn't this the guy who healed the Roman centurion's servant, the Gentile servant? Isn't this the very one who at the end of the gospel would send his disciples to who? Gentiles? And to the ends of the earth? Isn't this the one who would appear to Saul on the road to Damascus and call him, knock him off his horse, and through him would unleash the gospel into the Gentile world? To me, treat them as you would a Gentile and tax collector might as well be translated love them in the most continuous and hospitable manner available. I think Jesus is telling us that if conflict resolution, if trying to get this person to listen won't work, after letting them go, after granting some space, after everything, you don't shun them. You treat them as Jesus treated tax collectors and Gentiles. If words don't work anymore, maybe change your strategy, maybe stop talking and start showing people what forgiveness looks like. Because the goal is to bring one back to the 99. The goal is to have 100. The goal is to humble ourselves and to be as children, to serve and forgive. Pastor Nancy Janish says that to treat them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector doesn't mean we wash our hands of them. It means we continue to reach out to those with whom we have conflict. We must continue inviting them into the fellowship of the kingdom of God. She says, to remain in relationship with someone with whom we have a disagreement is hard. 
to remain in relationship with someone who has sinned against us is even harder. But, she says, it seems to me one of the things the church is supposed to do is to be a community that never gives up on each other. Rather, we are to be the visible witness of the steadfast love of the Almighty God, to be the ones who continually humble ourselves as little children and leave the 99 to find the one. And sometimes talking through it won't work. And when that happens, treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Preschool teachers have heard this story probably a couple times now. I talk about it every time I'm with them. My favorite teacher I've ever had was Miss Velma. Miss Velma was my four-year-old preschool teacher. And through the years after preschool, when I'd get in the car, after school, elementary, middle, high school, when I'd get home, my parents would, would ask me questions about school. How was school? And I'd probably just say, good. And they'd be like, come on, give me more. Uh, but then we get into the conversation of teachers. Who's your favorite teacher? And I'd tell them, and they, then they'd say, well, are they better than Miss Velma? No, not a chance. <laughs> of course not. Even in college and then seminary, when I had professors who had fancy titles, I'd be on the phone with my dad, and he said, any of your professors better than Ms. Velma? No. <laughs> Don't even ask such a silly question. She was the best. She honestly became a sort of legend in our household growing up because friends and relatives and friends of relatives know who she is. Because <laughs> she was a common reference in our house. Now, I want to be honest, because after my preschool days, me and Ms. Velma, we lost touch after that. Until six years ago, I used my detective skills and I tracked down her address. She wasn't even in the state anymore. And I wrote her a note. And six years ago this week, I got a note back in the mail from my four-year-old preschool teacher. And this is it. And her handwriting is so nice. <laughs> I just want to say that I don't, I don't think people write like this. Uh, I don't know that they teach this kind of penmanship right now. This is wonderful. And in the note, she told me a little about where they'd ended up and other things she'd done. And she wrote this in the note to me. She said, to have the opportunity to share the love, the laughter, the excitement, and the joy of children through the years has been a blessing to my life for which I will always be grateful. Now, I don't pretend that the life of a preschool teacher, that y'all's lives is always laughter and joy. In fact, I'm fairly certain that you all have some difficult moments with our kids. I'm sure that conflict occasionally occurs and rears its head. I'm sure that there are disagreements and moments where reconciliation is needed and forgiveness has to happen. But in moments where words don't work and no one is listening, you all, our preschool teachers, are there to show our kids what forgiveness looks like and to be visible witnesses to the steadfast love of the Almighty God. That example that you live shaped me at that age and has stuck with me. And I will never forget the teacher who taught me and cared for me and showed me day after day what it means to love a fellow child of God, to live in a classroom community, to forgive one another, and I'm sure when I was at my worst, to treat a frustrated and crying little four-year-old as Jesus would a tax collector, and a Gentile. Friends, may you be aware 
that you're human and that you probably have a way of dealing with conflict sometimes that may or may not be the best way, the most healthy way, but may you know that there is a better way, a way concentrated on talking and bringing unity back to brokenness. May you know that forgiveness is the ultimate goal and not just once, but again and again. Because, after all, you have been forgiven much. And how could you ever withhold something that precious from anyone? May you know that in resolving conflict, words may fail. And if that occurs, it simply means that it is time to show that person what it means to love and to care and to forgive. And may you know that if you start treating folks as Jesus treated tax collectors and Gentiles you might just be starting to become a visible witness of the steadfast love of the Almighty God. Let us pray. Gracious God, this morning I'm thankful for examples in our lives, for teachers, for parents, for mentors, who show us what it is to love you and to love each other. I'm thankful for their examples. I'm thankful for people, for teachers that we have that help us learn how to love the fellow children of God that are among us. God, give us grace. Give us grace to forgive each other. Give us grace to forgive ourselves and to share grace with all who need it, which means everybody. And may we know that you have already shown us the utmost example of what it is to love completely. May you transform our hearts and our minds and our lives that we might become visible witnesses of the steadfast love of the Almighty God. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.